Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. This is episode 260, which is kind of a big number. This is another history episode. And so I am joined by Eric Mills, the editor in chief of Naval History Magazine. Eric, how are you? Greetings, Ward. It's been too long a time. Good to see you again. It is good. Good to see you. It has been a long time. So the current issue, this one. Ah, uh, yes. Talks about the anniversary and what is that? The 30th anniversary of the war in the Falklands? That would be the 40th, believe it the or not. The 40th anniversary. I was told there would be no math. Um, of the war in the Falklands. So this is a great issue as always. Thank what you. else can subscribers and those who purchase it on the newsstand look forward to in this particular issue besides the thing we're going to talk to today? Yeah, well, in addition to the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, which has um, become a war that uh, people really like to study now, has a continued relevance. It's also the centennial this month of um, basically um, U.S. Navy carrier aviation. Carrier number one, Langley, CV-1, was commissioned in March of 22. So we've got some nice coverage on that. Uh, a really good overview piece by the great Norman Polmar. And then Dave Winkler um, got hold of an enlisted diary of this guy that was on the Langley in those early days of U.S. naval aviation. These guys are landing the planes and taking off. And it's a real Wild West show. And uh, it's a real good firsthand account. And uh, I recommend that to anyone. And, uh, yes, there's some great stuff um, also in there that we'll talk about today. But I'll leave uh, that to be teed up momentarily. So, and you're also working on the next issue, always toujours next. Right. Um, so what do we, what do we got in store for the May, June issue? Oh, stay tuned folks. This is going to be a good one. Got a lot of heavy hitters in there. Um, it's the 80th anniversary of Battle of Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway. And uh, we have John Prados and um, John Parshall weighing in on those two battles. Um, really um, honored and grateful to have them in the magazine for this occasion. Um, and there's a historical whodunit that I will just sort of tease here. But um, I believe that our NCIS author has gone back and solved um, a historical mystery from World War One, And uh, what everybody thought was the actual solution of who blew up that naval ammunition depot. He makes a compelling case that that ain't the story. And you might be reading the first true account of it in this upcoming issue of Naval History. So stay tuned. Fantastic. Always look forward to talking about the Battle of Midway. Um, this is, uh, you know, an amazing anniversary coming up. So we'll have those folks on the podcast as well as in the magazine, as we always do. Absolutely. So today uh, we're bringing aboard a return guest who's a good friend of ours and somebody that uh, both of us have known for many years, who's on the staff of the Naval Institute. And the article that he has written in the current issue is called With Warden in the Monitor and Beyond. And so this has a lot to do with the Naval Institute because he was our founder. And there are some details, there's some devil, devil in the details about who was actually the action officer and who was the founder. Mm -hmm. So let's bring aboard... Tom Cutler to talk about what he wrote in this this topic. Tom, hello. Hi. Glad to be here. Good to see you. So it's hard to believe just last week was the anniversary of um, the historic first clash of ironclads. Um, so March 1862 to March 2022, that got us thinking we'd like to talk about this again um, because the way we look at it, you always hear the story of the Monitor, and it's a thrilling and important story, and we've covered it. And you always hear about the origin of the Naval Institute. But those two stories are one continuous story, and we felt it was time that it be told that way. And Tom, bless you, has done a brilliant job of doing just that. Um, I would commend this to anybody who's a member of the Institute or... Um, is interested in that seminal period in the U.S. Navy where it was really in an identity crisis. And he has very effectively linked that momentous battle that changed the history of naval warfare to the founding of the Naval Institute 
And it's through the personalities and lives of these two, two men who were in both places. Uh, they were in the right place at the right time twice, as Tom put it to me. So, Tom, let's get started, man. Let's uh, let's hear you talk about this. Tell me um, what you think. Well, um, again, I think it's it's kind of ironic, you know, most of us go through our lives never taking part in any great historical moment. And yet these two two gentlemen, both uh, together, uh, were involved in these two very important historical moments. Obviously, the, the battle uh, at Hampton Roads is, needs no introduction or explanation for most of us. And then, of course, the founding of the Naval Institute is something near and dear to, to our hearts for obvious reasons and, and, frankly, near and dear to the Navy writ large. So, you know, this is a pretty, pretty cool thing. Um, I think that uh, it, it makes for an intriguing story. Uh, each one of them by themselves is an intriguing story. When you can combine them into a, uh, like, like we've done here, I think is uh, pretty, pretty significant. So let's talk about the early days of the fielding of the crew of Monitor. So this is bleeding edge technology at the time, sort of like the way we think about fifth generation fighters or stealth. Um, and this was a sail powered Navy by and large. And here comes this powered craft, low freeboard made of steel turret. It took what, 13 or 14 crew members to fire those two cannons alternately. Uh, so what went into getting this amazing ship ready to go to sea and to prevail in the civil war? Well, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, you talk about new technology and so forth. Some people would have called it new insanity at the time. Um, people who, some of the volunteers who had originally volunteered to, to serve in the monitor, uh, when they arrived, several of them said no, and they actually deserted rather than serve in this thing because it looked like uh, it had almost no freeboard. It was this uh, flat uh, vessel with a with a cheese box, as they described it at, uh, in, in the day, on top, and nothing else but a small pilot house projecting above. But otherwise, it just looked like this thing that was virtually had already sunk. So all of the, the uh, crew quarters and everything else were below the waterline, and this was not inter terribly intriguing. And especially since some of these um, young sailors had been recruited, this is early in the war, and some of them had absolutely no sea experience whatsoever. And so you're not only asking them to venture into the, the realm of the sea and ships and all this strange stuff, but now you're asking them to go into one that just looks totally, you, you got to be kidding me, was I think the, the attitude. So I think that that says a lot for it. But it was advanced technology. And, and when you think about it, I mean, we've got a rotating uh, 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 gun mount thing. You, two cannon in this thing and it rotates around so that they can train this thing in any direction. This is pretty revolutionary for the time. Used to be cannon were just arrayed along the sides of a ship, uh, sailing ships. And and, uh, and then you've also got the, the cannon themselves are, are pretty new technology. Uh, Dahlgren uh, was playing a big role. As many of us were, uh, recognize that name. Um, and then of course she's steam powered. Um, that in itself is un amazingly new um so you don't have any sails or anything like that um and that's another thing by the way that a lot of the steam-powered ships that were being developed at the time still had masts on sails on them as an alternate because they were so people were so afraid of uh, not afraid of but so concerned about this new technology that they wanted a backup system well this thing of course had no backup system it was totally going to depend on these steam engines so it it, it took a certain amount of of courage i think to uh, to uh, embark on uh, to be be part of this crew, so I think something to be said for the people that did not desert and stuck around for it. It's it shows the exigencies of wartime that a young officer like Samuel Dana Green would be the XO. Uh, in normal peacetime, that would have been an oddity. Uh, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, he was only twenty two years old, and and. Uh, um, they were desperate for naval officers at that point. You got to remember that a, a bunch of them went south and joined the Confederate Navy. Right. So you've got a much smaller uh, pool of officers to draw from, and therefore you're going to have to change some of your normal selection procedures, and that includes going for the very young. And that's what mm -hmm. happened here. Um, so did they did 
did they know what the seaworthiness of this craft was? Had there been significant testing before they fielded the crew or were there learnings after that by Warden and Green and everybody else on board? Yeah, there'd been some limited testing and so forth, but there, a lot of it was kind of an unknown. I mean, they were not sure how this was going to work. And and it, as I mentioned in the article, as they make their journey south, I mean, they not only just launched this thing for the first time, but she's heading in, heading for battle because the the word is, was out that the Confederates had an ironclad down there in, in the Virginia uh, Capes area. So, so she's heading down there, not, not just for a shakedown cruise, but for her initial combat experience. And as they head down there, they encountered a storm that uh, was pretty, pretty frightful to say the least. They were started taking on water, as I mentioned before, this low freeboard of this thing. They started taking on quite a bit of water, and and the water was uh, affecting the the pumps were run with these leather straps that were uh, uh, used as as drive belts or whatever. And they started to they got wet and they started to stretch, and then they they failed. So eventually, these guys are are bailing, literally bailing by hand, bailing the water out as this ship is taking on a considerable amount of water. And, you know, and to be honest, having experienced uh, uh, a little bit of combat and, and also having been seasick before, these guys are really seasick. And to me, that was the worst part of the, uh, that, that scared me more than the idea of going into combat because you're so debilitated when you're seasick. I, for those of you who have experienced, you know what I'm talking about. You're at first, you're afraid you're going to die, and then you're afraid you won't. Um, it's just <laughs> a horrible experience, and and to be that debilitated and yet still have to perform under those circumstances is an act of courage, desperation. I don't know how you want to describe it, but I, I think it really says a lot for the experience. Well, I mean, you can imagine if you're down below on the monitor, you have no reference. You're in this black box, literally, in in high seas you know that that just gives me the willies just thinking about it yeah you know at least if you're on a bridge you can kind of see outside and kind of you right. know get your bearings yeah um you know that's a to be honest that's kind of what freaks me out about the zoom wall classes how do you see out of that thing you know mm -hmm. um and uh i agree yeah so that as you talk about habitability and sea keeping and all these sorts of things um there must have been some real learnings during that transit. And as you said, they're on their way to harm's way. They're on their way to this yeah. fateful showdown on their first deployment. You know, that it's easy to um, be modern and in your technical in your thinking, but sometimes the idea that there is a hand of providence in the course of events, it just stares you in the face. And I feel like that's in the case of the monitor. She never really was seaworthy for open seas to that great of a degree. She very well might not have made it. She might not have made that first sea voyage down the coast to the mouth of the Chesapeake. <clears throat> but not only did she, she got there literally just in the nick of time, if you think about it. It's March 8th, 1862. That day, the CSS Virginia, their ironclad sea monster that they've put out there, has basically just destroyed the age of fighting sail in one fell swoop. And... There's nothing to stop her at the end of March 8th from get sailing up to steaming up to the Potomac and like suing for peace, and, like, bombarding Washington. There's nothing that can stop this Jules Verne contraption. And lo and behold, the monitor makes her way down there through those seas and gets there just in time to stop it. And you'll talk about the battle here in a minute, but people will debate this to the end of time. Who won? Was it, a, you know, was it a draw? It doesn't matter because the only thing the monitor had to do was bottleneck up the Virginia from doing any more harm. And right. once she got down there and they had their slugfest, she ne the Virginia never escaped past there again. Um, yeah, so yeah. That, that little ironclad saved the Republic that day. And that's it might not even made it there. That, that's a very good point, Eric. And I think uh, one point you, you talk about fact that they're getting underway and how dangerous this is to prove how dangerous it was, she later foundered on another voyage when uh she actually does go under uh the, the sea right. defeats her so the fact that she got there at all is pretty miraculous you know you talk about the hand of providence and that sort of thing and and that's uh 
it's it's hard not to embrace that kind of thing when you when you look at that it was it was almost seemed almost destined to, to happen if you will mm -hmm. so but you're right the importance of that thing was um pr pretty significant i mean th there was serious concern uh in washington that, that if they didn't do something this this thing could come up chesapeake bay into the potomac and threaten washington dc itself and washington as you know was threatened enough by its location during the Civil War, it didn't need to be uh, have a, a seafront as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the second half was freaking out about it. He, he's, he's got correspondence from the time. It's like, get that thing down there, man, all deliberate speed. Yep. And boy, they just made it. One more day, and it would have been too late. Yeah. So the, the artwork with the article shows Monitor here on the left in CSS Virginia. Um, CSS Virginia, and in common parlance, we think of this as the Battle of Monitor and Merrimack, which is inaccurate. Um, Merrimack, and keep me honest here, guys, Merrimack was a frigate, a, a, a sailing vessel that was burned to the waterline by the Union Navy, or the Union forces, and, and they built it back uh, as this ironclad. And I just remember in elementary school, always preferring the look of monitor because it was, you know, cooler looking, right? <laughs> With yeah. that low freeboard. Uh, of course, I didn't have to put to sea aboard her. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, I, as we said, generally we say this was fought to a draw, but it wasn't really. And as Eric just laid out, uh, monitor did what she had to do. Mm-hmm. It's funny to say that about the nostalgic memory of it. There was a model kit you could get back in the day, and it had both vessels, and that was the coveted model kit. And they were well made. And I remember it was so much cooler to build the monitor than the Virginia. So I'm with you. It just had a better look to it. Yeah. And you know, put it together. When you invited me to this podcast, I, the one one goal I had that I wanted to achieve, and I'm going to do that right now, is please stop calling it the Merrimack. It is the Virginia, the CSS Virginia. Thank you. I know I'm, I'm wasting my breath because it will always be the monitor and the Merrimack in most most instances. Even back in the day, they they often referred to it in, in right. that way. So the title of our painting in your article refers to it as that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just one of those things that you know history does some strange things sometimes and and get, gets it wrong, and they clearly did in this case. I mean, this ship was the Merrimack when she was a Union ship, but mm -hmm. she'd been you know, burned and then uh, rebuilt as this this other ship, and it was a Confederate state ship, Virginia. So ships, but I do think it's right to get the have the historical accuracy here. Definitely, they didn't destroy her well enough. They were able to salvage her and that's right. Get all in with her after that, you know. So anyway, what else did Monitor do after that famous battle? Not not much. I mean, she. Uh, to be honest, I I can't. I don't recall exactly, but uh, she didn't take part in any any other engagements or whatever. And as I said, she was wasn't that long later that she was she was lost at sea. Uh, she'd foundered there and and was recently. Uh, I say recent. It's been a couple of years now, I think, but it was recently discovered and brought back up, and uh, they were able to preserve some of the. Uh, artifacts and so forth. It's kind of kind of interesting that they actually found the, the original vessel, but it took this long to, to do that. Yeah, it's kind of underscores what I was saying a few minutes ago. The only other time she went into open sea, she sank. That was the only other time. Mm -hmm. She left the she left the bay uh end of 62 and that was it, you know? Yeah. So just another point in how miraculous and lucky it was she was able to get there. So was Warden still the CEO at that time when she sank no no was warden was dead. Lost? was the crew lost in that yes well somewhere 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 rescued i think i i know green for example he was still the executive officer at the time when she foundered and he was he barely escaped he, he was hauled aboard by i think the ship's surgeon or whatever a rescue vessel that was able to to survive but warden was, warden was very seriously injured um by, he, he was, in fact, he was the only major casualty in the entire battle on both sides. But Warden had been looking out through the what he called the lookout hole, which is basically what we call a bridge window, I guess, or whatever. But it's this little slit where you can look out and 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 see see where he's going, in essence. And uh, 
at that time they took a shock that hit and just uh he lost the sight in one eye he was permanently disfigured um and wound up blood pouring out all the pores of his upper face and so forth i mean and and he suffered a lot he, for the rest of his life he, he suffered pain and, and discomfort and disfigurement and and uh, so forth he went on to continue his career as a naval officer he did survive and, and recovered in a sense but he always suffered from that so so that was uh and it's as mentioned in the article uh, uh he's still blinded for a while wearing you know his eyes are one recovered but the other did not and he's visited by president lincoln who comes in and, and uh in one of those great moments and you know he says something oh i'm honored sir that you came to visit me and lincoln says quite uh, typically and understandably i'm the one who's honored to be in your presence or words to that effect so it's one of those great moments so anyway. yeah i think i think lincoln appreciated the gravity of what they had um stopped yeah. in the track. Yeah. Uh, sure. that's like that was a nice anecdote to put in there i like that um Green has some other interesting connections. Uh, we um, did sort of an offbeat piece last year about the connections between the Navy and the Battle of Gettysburg. And of course, if you remember that article, um, Samuel Dana Green's uh, father was instrumental in the Union success in that battle. But um, watch that podcast for more. There's a podcast for that as well. Commercial. But the connections between all these fellows is so fascinating. Um, and you see a lot of that in that battle. Uh, as I'm sure you, Tom can talk about too. I mean, some of these guys, uh, the commander of um, the Virginia, I won't belabor this too much. His brother was on one of the ships that he sank and he knew he was on there and he burned it. Uh, that's the kind of um, high emotionally felt um, patriotism for whichever side you're on they had in those days. It literally was brother against brother. And this is one of those kind of battles where you can see that. Yeah, there's uh, again in, in the article I mentioned the fact I thought it was kind of interesting was that that uh, Green, uh, his his roommate at the Naval Academy, was uh, in the other ship at the time and they were exchanging fire. Right. Um, and they didn't know it at the time, but I later on discovered that they or his roommate I, I forget his name, but he, he called him Butsy. That was the the uh, his uh, nickname for him. But at any rate, they. These guys had been roommates at the Naval Academy, and now they're shooting each other some years later. It's, it's not, not that much later. So that's pretty incredible. So was there some characterization of Green's actions that was uh, questionable, um, like his professional name um, was uh, was stained in some way as he perhaps he retired from the battle prematurely, not like a seaborne McClellan, as it were? Um, and I think this also motivated him to be part of the founding of the Naval Institute to continue professional thought and to try to not reinvent himself. But are, are you aware, Tom, of any uh, characterization of, of his actions once Warden was wounded? I see Eric nodding, so he probably knows more about it than I do. But I'll be honest with you, I did not did not know that. Um, I did. I will be honest also and say that while I was researching the article, it seemed like by the time Green took over, it was kind of he, he, he took command and then he retired from the thing. But it also it seemed to me it was time. They were these these two crews were incredibly exhausted, not only from the battle, but the day before the Virginia had been uh, sinking ships and burning ships and so forth up down there in the Cape. And the day before that, these guys went through that ordeal we already described they, this horrendous ordeal of trying to get down there and battling nature along the way. So they're they're exhausted, um, no time to prepare for the, anyway. So I, I, I think, and ammunition, I think was grow, growing, uh, getting low at that point too. So I think it really was the time to, to retreat. So I, I would not criticize Green. Maybe others have, you, you can always find somebody who will want to revise history or, or take take some some different tack. Well, no, I think this is actually time. at the time. Yeah. Um, I, there was some, go ahead here. I was gonna say, I was nodding because the Gettysburg piece I just mentioned, um talks about that um and it's just like you said tom it was um some sense that maybe he should have kept slugging it out uh not that it would have changed the outcome any uh and he did feel like he had to defend himself in print and he he um spent years on that and uh mm -hmm. it always kind of haunted him but there's no question that um you know they they got into the shallows where the Mer the virginia couldn't get them and there was just i mean all they're doing was like bouncing 
cannonballs off each other. And yeah. the, the Virginia had lost her battering ram. And uh, I mean, they, they were, you know, they were both pretty road hard and put away wet. And yeah. One of the things I, I think about in this battle is acoustics. The um, some of the people on the shore described, you know, when they were exchange broadsides, it, broadside, one, one guy described it as sounded like pebbles being thrown on a, a, a metal barn or that kind of metal roof or something like that. But if you're in these vessels, it's going to be a whole different experience. When you think about these cannonballs are slamming into the this thing and these guys are inside of that echo chamber. I, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have sounded like. No, um, just gunfire is a scary thing by itself. Yeah. And exploding rounds, but when you're, I, I, it's, just, it's just incredible. That, so, that round, I'm sorry, Warden. Go ahead. Well, so so Warden was really a badass end to end, um, and and that's why we take pride in him as our founder. Um, so you mentioned that he was wounded in the battle. He was also a POW at one point. Um, when did that happen? That actually happened early in the war before all this. Um, he was he was sent down before the war had actually started. He was sent down to carry some dispatches uh, from the, I think the Secretary of the Navy, or it's, maybe carry some important dispatches telling them what to do in the, in the event that the hostilities commence and that sort of thing. But the war had not started yet. So he's traveling in the South to get to the his, his uh, location with wearing a uniform. And he delivered the dispatches as he was he accomplished his mission, but on the way back, Fort Sumter comes under fire, hostilities commenced, and then he was hauled off the uh, the train, I think, and uh, was put in the local county jail and spent the first seven months of the war as a POW. I mean, he was being incarcerated, uh, not in a POW camp, but in, in, in a jail, and uh, that's where he spent the first seven months, but he was eventually released. There was some negotiation where we got him released and so forth, and that's why he's able to continue on in the war. So um, our good friend Antonio, good to see you, Antonio, ask, were there any significant tactics derived from this battle since both vessels were so new? I mean, it seems like it was kind of just a barroom brawl, bare knuckle, you know, broadsides, and the first one to flinch or to get tired or withdraw uh, was the loser. And as we've suggested, there wasn't really even a definitive loser, but Monitor accomplished the bottleneck, which was kind of the primary mission uh, of, of, you know, this part of that, that battle. Um, but as you think about it, Tom, were there any significant tactics that were derived that they leveraged later, maybe not just in ironclads, but in general? Where ear protection would be one thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, um, was that a thing? Was there oh, yeah. you have mouse ears back then? Yeah. 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 I, I, as far as tactics, I mean, again, this battle is such that these two vessels, they're, they're trying to get at each other in some way. And frankly, it's almost impossible. The only way they could have significantly changed things is if one of these rounds had come in through the cannon ports on the monitor, for example, or uh, on Virginia. But that, that just didn't happen. The odds are, even with all the shots that's being thrown around, the odds are it's not going to, you know, find that that key spot and so forth. And there's nothing tactically you can do about that except keep delivering as much fire as you can. And so, and, and again, I think that's um, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, it, some some commanders, there's always a, a question of, of balancing between weight and armor. Uh, how much weight, how much armor you're going to put on your vessel um, to uh, protect yourself. But uh, I mean, I remember in Vietnam, the PVRs, these fiberglass boats, they actually started out with some ceramic armor on them that uh, was of questionable utility. And the, the boat captains almost immediately got rid of it because the ceramic armor was slowing down the boat. They'd rather have the speed uh, and the maneuverability than what that little bit of armor was doing. These guys are, it's a whole nother world. The armor is everything in this particular, not everything, but a great, great part of what's going on. So they have to deal with that. And that, that has a lot to do with uh, uh, how they fight the battle. And it's mostly just kind of like a couple of boxers that are having a hard time uh, getting uh, um, at each other. They just have to keep sparring and dancing and around in the ring until they can find some vulnerability, which ultimately never happens. Antonio, one thing I'm going to add to that is not so much tactical, but sort of design lessons learned. Um, 
one advantage the little monitor had over the big Virginia was was um, it could turn so much faster. It could it could initiate a turn in about five minutes, and I think it took Virginia like twenty five just to come around. And so she was sort of making circles around her, and um, that that was something you know that monitor design uh, would be refined and um, expanded on, and uh, uh, it was definitely a more it was a more streamlined, movable vessel. But yeah, he talked about. Um, earplugs or whatever that time they uh the gunners in that turret and the monitor that we thought was so cool when we were kids um their ears were bleeding and uh it took that thing was hard to turn yeah you, you take it would take forever to get it to turn it was swing too far to the side you were going so some design lessons came out of it sort of yep. played tactic well you know? so um two two cannons and they'd cycle in and out, re rearm one after the other was fired. I think there were somewhere on the order of fourteen crew members in the turret. Um, you know, while they're while they're being uh, in, in combat. Um, so you can imagine how hot and sweaty. And as you said, um, Eric, the you know the physical turning of the turret to get it lined up, and then kaboom and just think of how loud that would be and then cycle it in and the other, you know, it, it, it just sounds like the definition of hell to me. Yeah. It was uh, as hot as hell in there. That's you're right about you know, that. that. That too. Right. And, and so, uh, Tortora Porco asks, what's the background behind the adoption of this turret? Cause this is way before there was a thing called a tank. I mean, world war one was some years down the road. Mm -hmm. um, so where did they come up with this turret? And was this the first, naval vessel to have one well i'm hoping desperately that eric has an answer to that because i really don't know um i, I, know I'm that, I, can, I can sort of address it a little bit no, please. uh the, the the inventor john erickson um is his design and uh you know they 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 tried it out in the crimean war but never like in actual thick of battle hmm. but if you look at those old crimean war ones they've already got that i think some of those have that erickson turret already you know 10 years earlier uh, it's a great concept on paper, but obviously, you know, these things, you got to work the bugs out of them. And it was certainly a step forward, as Tom pointed out, you know, to be able to move the guns and pivot them like that. So just this broadside or that broadside, you know. Um, so uh, Erickson deserves a lot of credit as the inventor of this. I mean, he kind of paved the way for the world navies to come. Uh, yeah, one of the advantages of a turret, of course, is that you don't have to maneuver the ship to maneuver the gun. Whereas with the with the Virginia, all these guns are lined up along the side and typical like they had, would have been on a sailing vessel. So the only way you can you can you can adjust the cannon a certain uh, certain degree of arc there, but not, but not a whole lot. The only way you can bring them to bear is you have to move the vessel itself to to bring your your guns where you want where they can find the target. Uh, and as you pointed out, Eric, uh, she was not the most maneuverable vessel by a long shot. So it's a real challenge for them to try to, to, to bring their guns to bear, whereas the monitor with her increased maneuverability and the fact that she can turn this turret, uh, that makes up for the fact that we're talking about only two guns against, you know, five per side, 10 for, for the other ship. So it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off that's probably well, well made, I think. Mm -hmm. So this article is called With Warden and Monitor and Beyond. So let's talk about the beyond part. Yeah. What what were the fortunes of Warden in Green after the war? Well, it turns um, as as fate would have it, or divine intervention, however you want to put it. But these two gentlemen wind up back at the naval, or not back, wind up at the naval academy some years later. I think it's about ten years later, as I recall. And Warden is the superintendent at the naval academy. I keep saying Warden. It's actually Warden is the way. It, correct pronunciation, I'm told. But anyway, Warden and and uh, Green are there. And Green is the head of the Department of Astronomy, Navigation, and uh, uh, Surveying. Anyway, so they're, they're carrying out their duties to educate midshipmen. But they're among this group of, of uh, uh, officers teaching there. And at this time, the Navy went into the doldrums after the Civil War. You know, during the Civil War, we built this pretty powerful Navy. Um, I think it was one of the largest in the world at this point. Uh, second, I think only to the British, if I'm not mistaken. At any rate, after the war, 
it just kind of stagnates. And all this wonderful technology is being developed by the Brits and other people in the world. We just kind of ignored or we're doing very little with it. Uh, in addition to that, the Navy was not considered uh, one of the prime things to spend money on at this point. So a lot of the ships were, were uh, gotten rid of. And, and, and then for the individuals, these promotion system is, is virtually stopped. It's stagnated. You got to wait for somebody to die in order for somebody to get promoted, you know, move up the chain and so forth. So there's a lot of reasons why these, these naval officers at the Naval Academy and elsewhere would be kind of unhappy about the way things were going. And you could describe them as a bunch of malcontents or however you want to look at it, but they decided to get together and talk about it. You know, they just, let, let's talk about this. Is there some way to fix this? Anything we can do? So this group of 15 people, including a, a Marine, by the way, uh, these 15 people get together at, at the Naval Academy in one of the lecture halls, and they start just having a bitch session, if you want to call it anything else. I mean, they're just talking about this. So um, what comes out of that is they, they kind of think, well, this is kind of cool. So they uh, decide to keep doing this, to keep meeting. And from that, they start developing things, you know, ideas of what, what can we do to make things better. And then they start recording the, the minutes of, of, of the meetings and so forth. They start taking notes and so forth. And then eventually start publishing those notes as the proceedings of, and there's this long title of proceedings of the, uh, the papers and proceedings of the United States Naval Institute. This is later shortened to the magazine that we're all, most of us are familiar with today, the Proceedings Magazine. And that's how all this kind of starts. And then, of course, they, they further expand uh, uh, the role into things like book publishing. We, uh, the Naval Institute winds up doing uh, books for the Naval Academy, textbooks and so forth, and then just publishing other books. Um, and that grows in itself. And then just a whole lot of things. And I don't wanna make a big commercial about the Naval Institute. We, we do a lot today. And that all evolved from that those initial meetings. Pretty pretty incredible stuff when you think about it. So so just to to put a finer point on some of what you were saying. So this photo here is illustrative. Remind everybody that the Naval Academy went to Newport, Rhode Island during the Civil War to keep the mids out of harm's way. And so this photo was taken seven years after the end of the Civil War in 1873. And you can imagine Admiral Warden and Green. What was his rank at this time? Lieutenant? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, Lieutenant Green, his XO, on the staff. I'm sorry, what? I think he may have been a commander by then. I'm not sure, but we can check. Okay. Um, so these two guys, the CO of Monitor and his XO, are now on the staff of the Naval Academy. Admiral Warden is the... Um, superintendent and they're walking around what we call the yard which is the campus and they look out to the pier out there and all they see are these square riggers there aren't any ironclads i mean there's a paddle wheeler right there uh, off that t pier um but you know you can imagine that he's not terribly happy with the direction that the navy has gone in the years after the civil war um the other thing that's sort of a fun fact for those familiar with the naval academy is the Severn River is about a quarter mile wider here than it is currently because the perimeter of the Naval Academy is all reclaimed land. So where you see the water's edge in this picture is actually about where First Wing and then the academic buildings, Michelson and Chauvenet are. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, and where those square riggers are is um, really where the sailing center is now because the ball fields and where the Triton light is and all that is, is beyond what we're seeing there. Um, and, and so um, again, you can imagine his ire, as you called it a bitch session when they all got together, but they're, they can't be happy with the direction the Navy has gone. That dirt road that's coming in from three o'clock there, again, for those familiar with Annapolis is Maryland Avenue. There was no like wow. gate three. Um, and so um, and the building they met in is that, let's just call it relatively tall building in the, in the center of the photo, which is the physics and chemistry building. As you said, Tom, their first conversation was productive. They're like, let's do this again. So these 15 guys, as you said, a Marine, also one academic, the rest Navy, um, keep having these meetings and they start writing the ideas down. And pretty soon they have this, this periodical, um, 
which, you know, is the, now check me on this as well, depending on who you talk to, um, I think we lay claim to proceedings being the second longest running periodical in the United States behind the Atlantic. Uh, so, yeah, I've heard various um, where we are on that chain, but it's, it's pretty impressive no matter where it is exactly in that rating. Interestingly enough, the national, we, we uh, predate the National Geographic. And <clears throat> it's my understanding from uh, I read some time ago that the uh, National Geographic, when they were going to form this this organization and have a magazine, they actually came to uh, to Naval Institute to to get some pointers on how to do it. And, and some pointed out that the early editions of the National Geographic and the Naval Institute proceedings at the time are similar in, in appearance and so forth. So it's kind of an interesting little anecdote there. They haven't discovered the art of cover photos yet. Yeah, well, that didn't happen until 1953. Yeah. That was the first issue that actually had wow. a photo wow. on the cover instead yeah. of the <laughs> two logos. It was the Naval Academy crest mm -hmm. and the uh, Naval Institute logo crest side by side. And it, like you said, it looks very National Geographic in that they just list the articles in each given issue. Of right, right. Um, so a proud heritage born of battle uh, by a been there, done that kind of guy. Again, let me put this picture back up in case there's any confusion. The guy on our left is green and this amazingly bearded gent on the right is what Tom called warden. I can't say that word and I'm going to say warden. Um, so, <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> so what we see there is this is a disfigured Warden, you're saying, Tom, is a, you know, because this is some years after his wounds. Yeah, he was described as being disfigured. I, I agree. I don't I don't see it myself, but but maybe it was more evident when you were up close or something. I don't know. But but he was definitely described as having been disfigured by this and, and losing the sight of one eye. Yeah. But again, you can imagine him wandering around in the in the mids in his presence and just how he would have exuded this credibility. Yeah. Um, you know what? What an amazing time it would have been to uh, to be at the Naval Academy. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the fact that the Naval Academy moved to Newport, Rhode Island. That's that's another story in itself, which is is fascinating. But uh, I, you know, something just occurred to me, and it's probably not. But I don't know whether the Naval Institute went with them or stayed down here. I think we. I just don't know. We've always resided at the Naval Academy. So well, so this is so that was that predates the Naval Institute. Right. Oh, of course. Um, so Tom, Tom was doing time and space there. All right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. Tom, you point out that this caught on. I get this far in this podcast without embarrassing myself too badly. I just too I, bad I, it's live. I could edit that out in old time. Yeah, maybe you should. Anyway, uh, there's no editing. <laughs> live. But I think it was a zeitgeist thing, Tom. Tom, and you mentioned this. This caught on pretty quickly, and it's fun here. Um, if you look in the archives and look at the early minutes of the meetings of the institute and you know the notes that they take there to become the proceedings of it and you see the signatures of those in attendance and you know see theodore roosevelt on there and all these um mm -hmm. han yeah uh, it's it's quite a thing i mean this they had the right idea at the right time and it might have seemed kind of a little bit um molotov cocktail throwing but it clearly there was a need for this level of discussion and I've always thought how unique it is. There is no U.S. Army Institute, you know, or anything like that that exists on West Point grounds. Uh, we really are this sort of uh, miraculous um, anomaly that we exist here on federal ground, always have, and we're kind of grandfathered in here now. But it's a very uh, unique and special thing. And I don't say that just because I work here. Well, and that's not an opinion. Right. Uh, exactly. Because you look at the bylines, you just rattled off some names that you know, our iconic Theodore Roosevelt, the great white Navy, his, you know, for all of his Rough Riders background as a land war kind of guy, he was a huge fan of global expeditionary force navies. Mm -hmm. And he was an associate member of the Naval Institute, very active in the forum. We talk about the first issue of proceedings, this one. In there is an article by Commodore Stephen B. Luce who would go on to write the article in a subsequent issue called War Stories, 
which led to the creation of the Naval War College, of which Stephen B. Luce was the first president. And that elegant building up there as you cross the Narragansett, look over to your left while you're inbound to Newport, and that elegant building is called Luce Hall. And we also have a building at the Naval Academy called Luce Hall. So the names on the buildings, like Nimitz, Rickover, Mahan, are bylines mm -hmm. through the ages of Proceedings Magazine. As you intimated, Eric, there is nothing like it. There is no analog, and that continues to this current issue right here. You know, so born of battle and that import has never relented since that time. Mm -hmm. If you put that cover back up, um, well, yeah, maybe we should go back to the original name of the magazine on proceedings. It would only eat up half the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all in that same size typeface. Yeah, yeah that's a that's but, really a good idea. We'll get them to do a mock-up and okay. put Yeah, go 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 cut and talk to Karen right after this. Uh, this Time to get that on the next cover. Working on it right now. So, well, it unfortunately, of, yeah, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say, kind of, kind of interesting to think what Warden and Green would think if they knew what what they had created and where, where they were. I mean, I'm sure they had a lot of vision and thought of things like podcasts. They they wouldn't be amazed by that. But but I mean, in all seriousness, you think about these guys. Get together to have these meetings and then here we are more than a century later um derived from from that that moment and so forth it, it'd be interesting if they could see what what they had wrought if you will or, well you know. I, that's a cool point that's a great point it's a century and a half uh and, and we always talk about in you know in meetings as we're doing product priorities or whatever we're like warden's intent and and it, it wasn't his first idea wasn't Let's create a print magazine and that'll be the format forever. It was, I want to impact hearts and minds. I want to start to wake people up that this post-war Navy is starting to atrophy, that the threats to the homeland are, are existential in the form of particularly the Spanish Navy that had designs on the Caribbean and other places. They threatened to stymie our westward expansion and these kinds of things. And so it was the articles in Proceedings like I just mentioned, that did things like create centers of excellence that still exist, like the Naval War College. Um, you know, Gunnery School, Admiral Sims, who was one of the original authors in proceedings, created the first schoolhouse that standardized naval training before it was kind of a grab bag of whatever any, any individual ship or command wanted to do. So all of this is, is you know, resonant in, in our heritage. You know, and, and uh, that 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 is sort of axiomatic. That's fundamental. So the other thing I will do in terms of a mini commercial here is if you join the Naval Institute, you have access to the digital archives. So what Eric is saying is not opinion. This is just the facts associated with the content that was coming out at the time. So Heather just put up the URL, usni.org slash join. And as a member, you get proceedings, you get discounts on Eric's Magazine Naval History, you get cool heads-ups on events and other things going on, but you also get access to the digital archives. And it is eye-watering. I'm not a historian. I do play one on YouTube and SoundCloud from time to time. But I am blown away. A Lieutenant Nimitz in 1912 writing about submarines you know, this kind of stuff. And absent any internet at the turn of the century, meaning 1800s into 1900s, guys like Warden, Green, Mahan, Sims, Fisk, Luce, used the pages of proceedings to create impact that affected meaningful and consequential change. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we're on the staff. And so, of course, we love the Naval Institute and we go way back. I will just say to this audience that without Tom Cutler, there is no punk's war, for instance, right? This goes, we go way back. And so, um, however, in spite of our own feelings towards the Naval Institute, the facts about its import exist outside of the realm of our opinions. And, and you know, I'm, I'm proud to sort of introduce this to midshipmen and other expeditionary warfare school and different groups nationwide uh, 
now that we're out of COVID, I'll start doing it in person again. That's a very exciting <laughs> proposition, you know. Um, so to your point, Tom, what would Warden and Green think now? I believe they would be the first to say, do not be wedded to a medium, be wedded to impact. And so this is why we're increasingly agile, best in class with our digital look. Here we are on YouTube having a live stream discussion and fielding questions and so forth and so on. And this episode will now, once we're done, live on our YouTube channel in perpetuity. Um, so we're all about reaching the right audience at the right time with the right issues. And so, yes, we do have a flagship print publication, but that's not, we're not leaning on that unduly. Um, and, and so I, I, I guess what I'm saying, Tom, is I think Emma Warden would be proud, dare I say. I, I would hope so. <laughs> I think if you think about it, they did embrace other media fairly early on. You know, it's a leap from, oh, let's do a magazine of our proceedings to before you know it, they're publishing books. Right. Uh, yeah. they, 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 the power to convene, as, as our CEO, Admiral Pete Daly, uh, says, is one of our signature planks. Mm -hmm. So they would convene town halls and they would, you know, have different forums in, in mm -hmm. on the Hill and and around centers of excellence and, and naval installations and Marine Corps bases. So we, we've always done what had to be done to affect the outcome that was necessary to create the finest Navy, Marine Corps and then later Coast Guard possible. And that's what we do to this day. So, Tom, the article once again is. With Warden and the Monitor and Beyond, it's in the current issue of Naval History Magazine on your newsstands now. As always, great to see you, and thanks for joining us for the podcast today. My pleasure. Great to see you, Tom. Thank you for a wonderful article. Sure. All right, Eric, another good episode. Um, I look forward to us getting together very soon for another history edition of the Proceedings Podcast. More to follow. Absolutely. Sounds good, Ward. We'll okay. see you soon. Well, that'll do it. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you guys again soon. And once again, Heather put up that URL. If you want to know more about the Naval Institute, or if you'd like to join, check out usni.org join. And a reminder that this podcast and other things are brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. So thank you to our members for your support and your writings and your attendance to our events. All right, Eric, we'll see you again soon. Sounds good.